Welcome to the Mike on Much Podcast. I am your host, Mike Bierman, and after a week off, our boy Max is back. Max, what's going on? I'm glad I got the call. Uh, I know you guys were <laughs> slandering my name. No, how dare you? What, what did we say? Uh, well, you, you said I was out of a job, and Matt would be the, the full-time new open guy, maybe uh, producer. Which, <laughs> which, you know what, I wouldn't even begrudge you, because he, he was a pretty, pretty, pretty damn good. He's a pretty charismatic guy. Yeah. Go back and listen to the last episode of Bishop Briggs, and you can hear our good friend Matt Owensworth. And also, uh, Bishop Briggs, who was great. Bishop Briggs was great, and you know what? Um, I was thinking about her, and I was thinking about Alyssa, Alyssa Cara. You know, I think we're, we're on to something. We have a good—with Alyssa Cara, we caught her just before things really started to explode for her. Yeah. And uh, do you think she'd recognize you, Alicia Carr, if she saw you again? Oh, good question. I don't know. My hair's a lot longer now, Max. Uh, another, actually, person who you, an early interview was Vance Joy, who we I just played with on the weekend. Did he recognize you? No, because I wasn't Oh, there Shane interview. was with me in the room. Yeah. Right, yes. And the, and the Lumineers. We also played with the Lumineers this weekend. Oh, how was that? Uh, it was good. It was out in Calgary and Edmonton. Did uh, you interact? Because they're good guys. Yeah. No, you know what? I did not get a chance to talk to either of those guys. Yeah. But Vance Joy, man, that dude, he's just, like, so tall and handsome. He's the taller, handsome Australian version of me. <laughs> <laughs> the Australian accent and the English accent, they're just cheap gimmicks, you know? <laughs> <laughs> On Canadian chicks. Oh, like, yeah. Oh, my God. You know, he tells this story about the song Red Eye. He's like, you know, this song's about, <laughs> it's about flying across the country on a red eye to meet the woman you love. Is that Vance Joy? I can't tell yeah. right now. <laughs> uh, that's hilarious. So he tells that story. He Everybody's that story. hearts melt. Yeah. yeah but God bless that guy. Did you interact with him at all? Nope. I did not. Yeah, you, people think that you Everyone know, hangs it's out. just a big hangout. And, and the reality is, you know, if you know somebody going into the festival, you'll make an effort to, to see them. Like, we, we know the winter sleep guys, and we hung out with them a bit. But everybody else sort of just, like, sticks in their trailer or shows up an hour before they play. But uh, what else is going on? We uh, we just played a Frost Week show at Laurier. Uh, Good times. It was great times. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the backstory with... Um, with Laurier and the city of Waterloo is that my girlfriend, Lauren, went to school there uh, all through undergrad. So I spent a lot of time there. So it was uh, it was pretty nostalgic for me going back there. Really? Uh, yeah, I, w- I walked by her old house and took a photo and sent it to her. Aww. All the places we used to go, like uh, this coffee shop and some restaurants. Yeah, Phil's. <laughs> uh, and it was, uh, it was great. Um, How was the show? The show was our best show there we've ever had. Really? Yeah. Were was, they going nuts? They were going nuts. I also... Um, you know, actually, okay, so for our listeners, we had this one bit in Pulling Punches uh, where Anthony does a piano solo. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like become a staple part of our set. But we like to try to keep it fresh uh, with sort of like the bit leading into the piano solo because we used to do this thing where uh, I'd say that Tony wanted to join an Elton John cover band <laughs> and then he'd, he'd quote all these Elton John songs. And then uh, we moved that to a Billy Joel cover band and he'd quote these Billy Joel songs. Uh, and when we were in England, I did something which I often do is I call you, Mike, and I ask for advice. And I say, Mike, how do I set up this bit? Because you're a wordsmith and you're, you're good at setting up a story. You're a great storyteller. So together on the phone, I was in uh, Shoreditch in London, England. And you were, I think, at work probably. Oh, yeah. Like and, a sucker. Yeah. <laughs> and, we, uh, and we worked out this whole bit about Genesis and Peter Gabriel and <laughs> Phil Collins. And you walked me through it. And I did it at the show. And it killed. It went well. And, it, and so basically the bit was we went on a Genesis walking tour <laughs> around London. And uh, and we were seeing the place where they first recorded their album and their first gig and where they had their first drink. Yeah. And so I was like, who wants to hear 
uh, Genesis song, and then we played That's All. Or Tony played do 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 yep. do 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 do. I was like Tony, and then we, the next song we played was a Phil Collins song. Uh, which one was in it? In the air tonight. Oh, in the air tonight. Basically, I needed to get to the setup for the whole band launching into Sledgehammer, which is Peter Gabriel's song. Yeah. So how do we do it again? Essentially, you you want to. It was kind of like you know. There's this raging debate as to who's the better Genesis frontman, Phil Collins or Peter Gabriel. And if you were to ask Peter Gabriel who the real genius is, it's Peter Gabriel. He'll tell you it's Peter Gabriel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Did that go over well with the guy? Anyway, killed. It was awesome. <laughs> and and the thing about the magic of a show is you can kind of create just that. You can create magic. And so people, even our management, Meg, uh, who's one of our managers. She she comes up to us after the show and she goes, I didn't know you guys went on a Genesis walking tour. <laughs> Why didn't you tell me? I would have loved to go on it. I was like, I was just making it up. Does one even exist? No, of course not. I really. love it. Yeah. So anyway, uh, leading me back to the show um, uh, last night at Laurier. I'm giving away all my secrets here, but whatever. So we want. I want to think of a funny way to set up the solo. Now, when I went to visit Lauren at Laurier. Um, they had a music department, and I'd try to sneak into the music room sometimes when she was at class and just try to play stuff on the piano and just, like, work on songs. And sometimes I'd be let in, sometimes I wouldn't be let in. People kind of looked at me suspiciously. Sometimes people weren't paying attention at all. I once tried to call the music department to officially, like, get like official. set up a... To set up, like, hey, can I please bore your room? And they, like, said no to me. Um, <laughs> so from there, I made up this story that... Tony, that not only I ha- met my girlfriend at Laurier, which is true, but also Tony met his the love of his life at Laurier as well. And they're actually getting married this week, <laughs> which is true. But uh, so Tony is marrying Scarlett, but Scarlett never went to Laurier. No. No. So, uh, so I'm telling this story and I say, you know, while our girlfriends were at class on campus here, we'd go to the music room. And but we'd always get kicked out. This old haggard old professor would just give us the boot. But then one day we came across a student in the in the music program, and I was like thinking on the spot. I was like, "What should I call the student? What should I call the student?" I was like, "Julian, jamming Julian." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "I was like, we met a student jamming Julian, and you know what he did for us? He got us fake student IDs." <laughs> and, and so, and then from then on, we were able to use those those music rooms whenever we wanted. And we want to show you what Tony was working on. And then Tony launches into a piano solo. Hey. And so, uh, and everyone lost their mind. And the coolest part about it was, I, right out, I was walking around the campus, as I was saying. I was, like, collecting memories, sending photos to Lauren. And they have, this year, an upright piano set up outside of the music department, like, in the middle of the campus, like, outside. Okay. And so, just before we were going to the last course of Leather Jacket in the encore, I said, hey, we're actually going to play one more song for you. We'll meet you outside by the upright piano. We're going to do this for Jam and Julian, and we'll see you out there in three minutes after we finish this song. And so, we played the song, and then we ran out to the, uh, to the piano, and by then, the whole concert, there was like a thousand people there, had basically went to the piano. And they like they ran out of the they venue ran, as well. They ran out of the venue. Oh my god! We this went is around awesome. the back door, and then we did dancing in the dark, and uh, it was awesome. Were people that sounds. Was any of that filmed? Uh, there, there's there's film like camera phones and stuff like that. That's amazing. Did you stand on the piano while yeah, Tony well, played it? Tony, uh, Tim played us tambo. Mike played guitar. Tony played piano. I stood on the piano bench like next to Tony's butt. 
Nick has strep throat, so he went to the hotel. <laughs> Check baseball scores. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, he was tweeting some stuff. Uh, and uh, it was great. It was a real moment. Oh, my God. That sounds like an amazing moment. Yeah. And was... I love that the whole venue just ran out. Oh, yeah. It out. was it was pretty spectacular. Like, because we, we went around another way, and then we were just kind of approaching this area where the piano was. And you couldn't see the piano. It was just like a mob of people. Actually, uh, somebody tweeted, uh, like, overheard by uh, campus security there's somewhere between 60 and 800 students running at us right now. There's only 12 of us. We need backup. <laughs> it was good. It worked out. It was really cool. Uh, yeah, I just wish there was, like, props like that at every venue we played. When, so when you see this piano outside the venue, when do you decide you're going to do this at the end of the show? Um, I called Tony, like, at around, you know, six. He was at dinner because uh, I was just kind of walking around by myself. I said, Tony, I got this idea. Piano's a little out of tune, but can you go check it out to make sure it's, like, good enough and then I sent him the, like the location on my Google Maps phone and, and uh, he he went over he tested it out he's like oh this will do the trick and I said alright guys and I think in the early days the band might not trust me as much or just because maybe a little more insecure about it or we'd have some sort of philosophical debate but we've, I've gotten to the point where the band just like lets me run with these ideas and about like 95 Four percent of the time they work out great, and about six percent of the time they're <laughs> train wrecks. <laughs> but the, that's a pretty good batting average. Yeah, everyone's willing to live with the percentage. Actually, another thing that happened was I put out a call on Twitter saying, "Anybody from Laurier know how to play private school?" And uh, send us a video of you playing private school. And we got like four or five submissions, and, we, and I picked one. I actually happened to run into him on the street before the show. He recognized me. He's like, oh, I sent you a video. I was like, okay, well, keep, keep your ear out during the show. And we called him up, Mitch, and he f***ing nailed it. It was awesome. Really? Yeah, it was really oh, cool. Oh, man, that's yeah. sweet. Yeah, and he plays in a campus band, too. So he was like, yeah, very excited about it. Yeah. Yeah. Hero for a night, that guy. Yeah. yeah. All right. On the show today, Max, we have Ben Mulrooney, host of Your Morning, E-Talk. The man who I once said has a small butt. On this very podcast. On this very podcast. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, son of a former prime minister, very successful in his own right. Yeah. You, you sat in for this interview. You yeah. set this interview up. Yeah, I was really excited to talk to Mr. Mulroney. There's not many people who've, you know, lived the life he has. But yeah, it was really interesting to hear him talk about his childhood. The one thing that I found was really interesting was the, the reason why he went to Duke. That was yeah. one of my favorite answers, and we'll let you listen. That's a good tease. Yeah. And also, he tells a great uh, story about getting in a bar fight with Justin Trudeau. That's right. Our prime minister. No, so. wi- or not against Justin Trudeau, but as a... As an ally. As an ally of Justin Trudeau. I liked it better when we teased that maybe he potentially <laughs> fought <laughs> Justin Trudeau. Yeah, yeah everybody would have been uh, fast-forwarding to that. All right, you want to get to Ben Mulroney? Let's do it. All right. Montreal car rides home, sitting in. Oh, that was me yesterday. Ca- <laughs> <laughs> that, that was me. Yeah, yesterday. I went to the birthday party. I went. I went out the night before uh, with my my brother-in-law and my two brothers-in-law, and so we went to a restaurant um, called uh, Jatoba. Okay. You've been there? It's a sushi place. Okay. Right, right, in, um, right by Place Phillips. Okay. Fantastic place. Really, really good. Oh, cool. But they just kept sending drinks. Over. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, we occasionally get that with the band with the guys just like handing you. Yeah, oh, yeah. I play the Arkells. So yeah, yeah, and uh, <laughs> and then you know, it's hard to say no. Yeah, do you feel yeah. obligated to drink it because it's been sent over? Yeah, spend shots too. Yeah. Do you ever do like the two sip and leave it uh, occasionally, or yeah. I'll hand them to like our friend Dan Hamilton. Yeah, well, my my dad hasn't had a drink since he was in his like early thirties, 
But when he would go campaigning or go around the world, like the worst was when they'd go to Ireland. Like they'd, <laughs> they'd be going through towns and, 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 and the pub owners would come out with these giant uh, glasses of beer and my dad would go, oh, thank you very much. My, my wife would love this. Uh, and my <laughs> pregnant mother's there, okay, I'll take a little sip. And he'd just get this. He, like he, he stopped smoking, he stopped drinking. He says he doesn't miss booze at all mm-hmm. he still misses smoking every single day oh, wow. wow but yeah but he doesn't all just doesn't like being around alcohol like oh. he doesn't when we go to restaurants and stuff he um he makes sure they take the wine glasses away because he doesn't want anyone accidentally putting uh wine in front of him oh wow yeah. just because he just doesn't he, like he's he, well you know he was um he, he probably self-diagnosed as alcoholic a long uh-huh. long time ago uh but sort of came to a realization where he said uh, you know i can't be all these things. Yeah. Uh, I can't do all these things that I need to do in life. Uh, and so he just gave up cold turkey one day. He was know? taking away his ability to accomplish things. He was either, he said, I'm either going to be a really great um, mid, you know, mid, mid-range partner at my law firm in Montreal, and that's what all I will be, or I get to or get to be prime minister. Your dad's family came from a small town. Uh, yeah, Bay Como. Yeah, working they, class as working, well. Yeah, it was, yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's on the North Shore of, of the St. Lawrence River. And it, it was, um, you know, it was a, it was a paper mill town. It was a paper mill town? Yeah, I think it's a paper mill. And, um, and, uh, in order to like actually fill the paper mill and the, the industry there, they actually paid people to move up there. So they were called pioneers. Wow. So there's a park in Bekomo called Le Parc des Pionniers. And there's the names of all the people there who sort of helped build the town. And my grandfather, Ben Mulrooney, uh, is one of those guys. Wow. Yeah. I mean, did your father talked to you a lot about his upbringing sure oh no yeah coming up no he was uh he was you know a staunch irish catholic family and and a lot of kids yeah that's why so my i named my son brian because he had a son named ben so we're sort of it it turns out that's what we ended up doing alternating but my other son's name is john and the reason i named him john was because that's my dad's first brother who was born and died on the same day and there was Mm -hmm. there's no record of 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 anything we don't even know where he was buried and so when I found out about that, I was like, okay, I'm going to name my other son John because it's sort of going to be a living testament to this boy that nobody knew. Um, but that was sort of par for the course back then. Um, but I think uh, a lot of kids running around a really small house, and um, and my grandfather passed away when he was, I think he was, about, I think he was 50. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so my dad, it was his responsibility as the eldest son to take care of everybody. And that's what he did. He moved at one point, he moved the whole family to, to Montreal. And uh, took care of, you know, put people through school, took care of my mom, took care of, took care of everybody. Right. And those small town values and sort of the, the idea of, of taking care of your brood and everybody that you think those were passed on and that was instilled? I think so. I mean, we, you know, we, we always refer to what we call Fortress Mulrooney, which is like everybody in our family is in a, in, is in a uh, metaphorical fortress and we've got a moat around it. And it's our job to take care of everybody on the inside. And if anybody wants to come in, we got to. You know, we got to vet them. You yeah. Know, make sure we put bring the uh, the, uh, the drawbridge down. But uh, no, it, look, there's there's some fun stuff too. If you don't eat fast, you don't eat. <laughs> that was that's one that I learned. My wife tries to get me to slow down when I eat, but I learned it from my dad. Uh, no, the look the, the the one thing that I think he and my mom taught me was, uh, you know, because we he grew up in a tiny little house. I grew up in 24 Sussex, but you know, they always told us you you are as special as they come. You know, we think that you are perfect smart help you in any way that we can but that's all we can we can do that from within this house the moment you step out the door you're not special to anybody like every everybody's special to someone um but but once you step out of this house you have to prove yourself to all those other people 
And they said, you know, one of the reasons we want to help you is because you're probably going to have to prove yourself a little more because you're coming with a lot of baggage. And so, so that's how I try to live my life. That's how I've tried to grow up. And that's what I'm trying to instill in my kids, which is I'm going to help you in any way I can. But once you get out the door, rather than after, once you walk through the door that I've held open for you, um, you're going to have to keep it open because other people are going to constantly be coming, trying to close it down. And, I, and I, so I think that when you're born to a certain amount of privilege, I think that's the, to me, that's the best way of doing things. You know, it's, you're not denying, I'm not denying my reality, but I'm also, you know, I'm not going to let anybody else tell me that, uh, that, uh, that it, that everything has been easy because I have worked very hard and, and, and I appreciate hard work. And, and I think that's the only way to, I think it's the only way to get a person of privilege to appreciate hard work. And maybe the assumption, even the way you said that, is that like people think maybe there's been an easy road for you because of the situation that you well, there, there, Listen, there's certain things that I have not had to worry about that others have to worry about. Absolutely. But show me how that... <laughs> show me a way where that can't happen in my life. I mean, my dad was prime minister. He worked his way up and he became prime minister. And, and because of that, a whole lot of doors were open. Now, what would, you, what would anyone think of my father if he decided to just keep all those doors closed? Yeah. Like, Good luck, kid. How, how do you do that? How, how, do, how, do you, how do you provide for your family and give them everything that, you, that everybody always wants to give their family, um, uh, and, uh, but, but not give them the leg up? That doesn't work. I read a Judd Apatow quote where he's like, I'm not going to not let my kids fly first class to punish them or to teach them some sort of, you know. Uh, You know, you mentioned growing up the son of a prime minister. You're about eight when your father became prime minister? Uh, uh, It started, the whole thing started when I was about six. Okay. I was born in 76. I think it's six. You're making me doubt it now. (laughs) Well, you're pretty young at the time. Yeah. I mean, were you able to contextualize it? Oh, sure. Uh, You know, um, the first time my dad ran was the year I was born. Uh, and uh, I mean, the first time he ran and lost the progressive conservative leadership. But when he, the year he won in 1983, it was the same day my sister, it was my sister's ninth birthday, okay. June 11, 1983. And we watched the whole thing on TV. There was, they don't do this anymore. Like these, these conventions are not done the same way because they have to tabulate all the votes by hand. And so there was a lot of time for brokering. There's a lot of time for one guy to go over and have meetings with another guy and sort of bring him into the fold. And, and it happened in the Ottawa, uh, the hockey arena that they had and it, apparently it smelled bad and it was sweaty and it was bad lighting and it was crowded and it was like what what these conventions used to be all about um, and we watched them my sister and I remember watched the whole thing I understood the concept of the ballot system and and you know starting from behind and eventually building your team and um, and, uh, and so yeah so I, I remember very early I was part of sort of part of that pretty pretty early I knew, I didn't know that it meant that we were going to leave Montreal forever Right. I had no idea that it meant we had to move to Ottawa. That was something I wish they had run by me. Yeah, was that difficult? I mean, it wasn't difficult. You're pretty it's young. Just, it's when you established yeah, a ton yeah, of roots. No, it's just that you know, as you get older and you see that uh, you know <laughs> Montreal's got a hockey team, and um, you know, there was just more um, in Montreal when we go visit. It's slightly more exciting. I think slightly. you're being diplomatic right now, saying that Montreal's more fun than Ottawa. <laughs> Ottawa, to be fair, is more interesting today when yes. I go back than it was. And it's not that I'm a parent. Everyone says, oh, it's the best place in the country to raise kids. <laughs> That's not why I think it's better. I think there's better restaurants there now. I think there's a slightly better nightlife. I think there's better hotels. I think I think the city is prettier. Uh, they've invested a lot in infrastructure. So I think, except for that sinkhole that they had. Yeah. Remember that? I missed that. Yeah, I, I missed that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, we were talking about, I don't know if it was Sasha or Malia, whoever got busted at Lollapalooza. Yeah. When you're growing up, how do you feel about the attention that you're receiving? Do you notice it? Is it not as it's different back then? Uh, the, 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 
the, the the scope is so different that it's an entirely different beast. I mean, it's 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 um, the press really didn't come after us. Every now and then they try to insinuate some stuff by saying that like some journalists tried to say that we, we would stop at a, at a at a convenience store on the way home and buy overpriced candy. I mean, this was supposed to stick to my dad, but um, but beyond that, no, we were left alone. So you can't really compare the two. Um, I did feel it when we didn't have it anymore. For the first couple of months, the idea of walking down the street and not having protection was a little weird. I did feel a little exposed because the safety blanket was gone. Sure. Uh, yeah, that, that, that quickly goes away. You get used to your new reality. But I do remember feeling that, that there was this like this absence of a shadow. You would have been a teenager. Better. Yeah, I was a teenager. Yeah. What were your peers like with you, you being a center prime minister? Did you feel different? Did they treat you differently? Well, I went to a school in Ottawa called the Le Lycée Claudel. It was a French school run by the French government. So they put these lycées all over the world, wherever their diplomats, where they had a high concentration of diplomats, so world capitals and things like that. Uh, and and they, esta- they established these so that their the kids of the diplomats would always be in the French system. And if they left Paris or they left France to go to Washington or to go to London, they could keep their kids in the same school system and they would always be ready to go to an, a, a French university. Mm. So I was at school with a lot of kids, with a lot of diplomats' kids. Um, and so that, so I never... You're all serving the same boat. Everything's fine. I, I, I didn't, when you don't have a different point of reference, you don't have a reference that stuff is different, then that's just your reality. I did not know things were different. I didn't, I didn't think... I, I didn't I didn't notice them until after we left politics. I didn't know that people normally, you know, I I remember the first time we were having dinner at my house in Montreal, my parents' new house, and a buddy of mine just showed up at the house and rang the doorbell while we were having dinner. And my parents were like, what's, what's going on? I, was like, I, lo- I looked at my friend at the door. My parents were a little miffed. They said, look, why didn't he call ahead? Because like, that's not what people do. People ring the doorbell, you answer the door, and they come into your house. But back when we were in Ottawa, you couldn't get past that gate unless you called ahead first, and they knew that you were coming. So uh, you don't know things are different until they are. Right. Did you find that in your upbringing there was like a lot of... Did you get a lot of father-son moments with your dad, even though he had such a, such a high-profile job? Yeah, yeah. We. Uh, I wrote an article when... Justin became prime minister. I wrote an article for the Globe and Mail about growing up in that uh, in that place and and um, and sort of now looking back as a parent uh, on on those moments. I think, yeah, that my parents weren't around as much as some other parents are, but I felt their presence all the time. And I think that's all you can do as a parent is to, you know, if you're traveling, if you had kids at home, you know, if so long as when you're home with them, you're the best version of a dad you can be. Yeah. Uh, your kids are going to remember that. All the other stuff that's going to fall by the wayside. I mean, I think it's a, I think we're all programmed to remember the best. And so I, the times I remember with my dad were like at night um, after dinner, we would sit around and we watch the news together in his, in his den. So he'd do a flyby and flyover of all the, all the different uh, channels. And we'd, we would watch that as much as we could, and and then we talk about the news. It was also, a way for me to get around my mom's rule that I wasn't allowed to watch TV during the week. <laughs> and so I'd sit with my dad. And I remember that a lot. And then in the winter time, we'd go up to the prime minister's residence in the in the country, and there was a lake which we turned into a skating rink. And so we oh, skate a lot and play hockey together. Um, and it's so it's those moments. Uh, 
look, I, I don't, I know my dad traveled a lot, but I don't, in, in my memory, doesn't feel like he did. Mm-hmm. So you do all this, mm-hmm. you grow up, and then you end up at Duke. Yeah. How do you end up at Duke? Uh, it was, I knew I was always going to come home. Uh, so I thought, let's go away for a few years. I also knew I wanted to study history and political science. And I had no desire to go to a Canadian university where a disgruntled wannabe politician who always wanted to score points against my father could take it out on me. Fascinating. I had no desire to sit in a history class and be and have some guy know that Brian Mulroney's son is there and he's going to tell me how it is. Yeah. So instead, I want to go somewhere. I want to just get away and just be a student for a while. And ironically, I picked a school that had that actually had a Canadian Studies department. <laughs> It, they had a, a, a department that they built in conjunction with McGill University. And so they had, which was really interesting because when I was there, I took a class. It was in 1993. And this was when Clinton, Bill Clinton and his wife were taking a stab at healthcare reform. And so I was able to study Canadian, the Canadian healthcare system by way of a comparison with the American system. Yeah. And, um, and it, was, it, was, it was great. I, 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 it was quite surprising. Another thing that was interesting is because they had a Canadian studies department, if you had a TV, if you had like Duke cable, like if you lived in the dorms and you had the Duke cable system, I had CBC Montreal in my room, so I could watch all the my local news as only, part of this curriculum. Yeah, for some reason they got it. They they, they got they got a right to carry it, but I was able to watch um, all the hockey games. I was able to watch, and I was able to watch the um, all the referendum coverage in 1995. Uh, 1995. Uh, with Jean Chrétien. I remember uh-huh. that. Yeah. When, when, and I was sitting in a bar alone in 1995 watching it because I asked <laughs> him to change it. He was on the, on the campus bar. And nobody, like, I couldn't get anybody to appreciate how big of a deal yeah, this was. big shit going on this in Canada. Big I, re- shit going I remember they, I, I grew up in Hamilton and they sent buses. And I got on a yeah. bus with my friend. I was way too young to get on a bus. Yeah. I remember, like, going out there and it to was... Where? Ottawa. They had a huge, yeah, the, the like, Ottawa rallies. and Montreal. They had huge, like one hundred fifty thousand people showing up. Yep. Um, for uh, to show their support for United Canada. Huge, totally. huge, All huge like stay. Yeah, yeah. a yeah. lot of people said this was um, the the tide had turned because right. of this, and of course, then the the yes side claimed that a whole bunch of laws were violated because of this, because like Air Canada was giving discounts for people to fly from around the country to, uh-huh. to go in there. And, oh, yeah. So that's that's sort of. I mean, is that third party advertising? I don't know. It's an interesting question. Yeah. So you're going to Duke, and what's your plan for your career at this point? No plan. <laughs> just, just learning. How many people hanging have a plan? out? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was a, I was a history poli sci major. I was a liberal arts guy. Yeah. By definition, there is no plan when you're in liberal arts. I was, I was, uh, I used to say that I, uh, I majored in dinner conversation because <laughs> I learned just enough about enough subjects to make myself interesting for three courses. Yeah. And um, no, I think. Uh, I you know I tried a whole bunch of stuff while I was down there, um, and I, I I tried my hand at directing a play. I I, I uh, you know got involved in some uh, uh, student political organizations. I you know I ran for treasurer of my dorm, um, and I worked in a gold mine during the summer. I, my dad was on the board of a, of a gold mine. He said, "Hey, do you want to work in a gold mine?" I said, "Yeah, I would love to work in a gold mine." What does that entail? Like, does it? Yes, it oh, here's what it entails. It entails in order to get the proper work permit to work in because it was in <laughs> Nevada. In order to get the proper work permits and student visa, I had to change my major from history and political science to geology, which meant I then had to sign up for all these friggin' classes. <laughs> and then I went and I worked in the mine, and it, it was really interesting. Big open pit mine in Elko, Nevada, and learned all about uh, dewatering and uh, you know all the policies around the environmental protection. Um, 
going through the explosives department temporarily. Right. Temporarily. Temporarily. Yeah. Did you uh, see any, any dynamite go off? Oh, hell yeah. We yeah. blew some shit up. <laughs> and, uh, but then when I got back to school, uh, I realized I got to change my major back. And all the classes I wanted were taken. Uh, so I had, to spend a, I had to spend a semester taking classes I did not want to take. But I made enough money to buy a car because uh, it's, uh, it's high-risk work. Yeah. So I made enough money to buy a, uh, a, uh, a Ford Mustang with zero bells and whistles. Like nothing. <laughs> no air conditioning. Roll-down windows. Felt seats. A tape player. Like this was, <laughs> but what the hell did I got? I had a red car. I was yeah. happy. I was insane. like 19 and a half piece of pig and shit. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Did you make a lot of friends at Duke? Yeah, I did. Most of the friends that I... But the, the group that I really keep in touch with is quite small. Um, and I, I don't know how... I don't know... I think... I don't think I actually became... I think I spent a lot of time growing up trying to figure out who the heck I was. Sure. And I don't think I really figured that out until I moved here. And even that's later on when I moved here. Uh, to Toronto. You mean. Yeah. I think, the, I think the person I am now uh, with my... I, I recognize myself. I, I'm confident in who I am. And I think it's only... Like for me, I made my closest friends sort of really later in life. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that I know who I am. I know what I'm bringing to the table. I know... And what you want. Out and of what I friends. want out of relationships, yeah. So the, I've got a really tight-knit small group of friends from Duke, but not that big. I have a lot of acquaintances. Sure. Uh, but my closest friends are, are friends that I've made here in Toronto. Um, you mentioned you directed a play. You were yeah. trying things out. When did you start to head towards entertainment? I think I was always... I, I tried... I dipped my toe in it a few times. I... Like on the acting side, like I, uh, yeah, actually, I acted a little bit as a kid. I um, but that was because I was really shy. I was a really, really, really shy kid. My I would like cling to my mother's leg when we'd be out in public. So she put me in drama classes as a way of developing a little more confidence. It wasn't to, it wasn't to act or anything like that. But I kind of liked it. Um, I did. Uh, I the very first time I I did a play, I actually wasn't even in the play. I was the master of ceremonies for the play. It's kind of funny because that's end up. Kind that's of the I gig, do. yeah. Um, but then I was in a play at the National Arts Center in in Ottawa. Um, it was the first time that the NAC had a, um, a, a, a did a play with, and the majority of the cast was, was children. Um, and then after I did that, a, an agent in Ottawa started representing me, and I started doing. Uh, voiceover work this is as a child yeah thing? as a kid oh wow okay but not a lot i mean there's not a lot of work sure i got i remember i was i was offered a i was up for a gig for a commercial for like i think it was like some government department was doing some advertising and i was up for the gig um and they a lawyer said that i couldn't do it because it was conflict of interest uh so i realized it was more trouble than it was worth Ottawa's an industry town, and that industry is not entertainment. Yeah. So, I, so it, it it passed. But then I started working on the the backside of entertainment. I started doing. I worked at the Just for Last Comedy Festival three summers in a row, um, doing like flights and um, and uh, and transportation for all the stars. I was in charge of the guy. I had to I had to call people when they were late for their gig. You know, waking up Dennis Leary after a, a night in Montreal to tell him he's late for his gig. That's not, you, don't, you don't want to be the guy making that call. Yeah. Um, and, um, and then I worked, um, then when I started in law school, I was like, all right, well, maybe entertainment law could be fun. So I worked for a summer in a law firm in LA. And, uh, you know, it's, it's exactly like regular law work. <laughs> it's regular legal work. It's just the names on the contracts are a little more interesting. But right. it's still, 
it's still contracts and it's uh, a lot of office work. It wasn't, uh, it didn't uh, tickle my fancy. And, um, and then I only really got into it by accident when someone from here called me because they saw me do an interview at a political convention. Really? So that's, that's sort of the break. And then so no, the Genesis was that, yeah, I was, uh, I was at my dad's, I was at the progressive conservative policy convention in, in Quebec city. And this was back when they were you know, down at very few seats in the house of commons. And, uh, I was going to law school in Quebec city and they said, he said, look, it'd be really cool. People haven't seen you in public in a long time. And it might be a little shot in the arm, give a little publicity to the party that kind of needs it right now. I said, all right. So I went and I, that my father was right, you know, caused a little bit of a buzz. I was in the newspaper and I was interviewed by all the news outlets that were covering the convention and someone from CTV saw me and said, oh, there's a guy who's, you know, relatively photogenic and not afraid of the camera and he can speak fairly well. And that's what we're kind of looking for, for this new show. And so they offered me a job, which I did as a uh, webcam correspondent <laughs> for a while until I left, until I finished the bar and then I moved to Toronto. And then I did that until they shuttered the show. And that network eventually became MTV. Yeah. Did you have any mentors as you came into the industry, sort of figuring it out? That... And not not mentors per se, but I've learned a lot from a lot of people. Um, Suzanne Boyce and Yvonne Fetson, they were the people running CTV at the time. And they were, you know, they were big picture people. Like they were really, they dreamed big and they aimed for the start. There's a lot of big stuff back when big things were still happening in media, old media, traditional media at least. Uh, I learned from Jordan Schwartz, uh, who was my, uh, you know, he was my former executive producer. Um, Morley Nirenberg is my executive producer here. I've been working with him since my very first job in TV. He's become a great friend, but also someone I've learned a lot from. And I've learned from a lot from people who aren't necessarily in TV. My father gave me the best advice. He said, he said, you're about to get paid to get a PhD in television, so keep your eyes and your ears open all the time. And so I just, I've approached everything in TV as a learning experience. Mm -hmm. you know, I didn't go to I didn't go to school for it. And whenever I give speeches to kids about they, I always get asked, "How do I do what you did?" And I was like, "Well, just don't follow my path," because it was more about circumstance than anything else. Certainly, the last name helped, but even more than that was the time that I came up. I came up at the birth and the dawn of digital cable when we went from 30 channels to 300 and all of a sudden every network was scrambling to create content and to find people to create that content. That's not the case anymore. And if I wanted to get into TV today with the name Mulrooney, even with the experience, like I, you'd need the experience or you'd need to have gone to school for it. So I always tell kids, like, go to, go to school for it. Now, I, now it's a little bit different. Now it's like, put yourself out there online, uh, create an identity, create your brand. But, um, but yeah, it was a it was a really interesting circumstance, and had it had it not happened, I mean, I, last week I was in a shopper's drug mart, and this guy stopped me, and he said, "You know, I see everywhere, Ben, you're doing great." And, but I remember 15 years ago when you started in TV, and you were on, you were doing talk TV and, and Canada AM, and I told your dad, I bumped into your father, and I said, "You know, your son is really everywhere, and um, and he's doing great." And, and your father said to me, he's like, well, you know, Ben hasn't decided whether this is what he's going to do with his life, <laughs> which I think he was, my dad was really saying for himself more than anything else. <laughs> That's funny. But it's true. I was going to do it until until it dried up and then I was going to find something else to do. Uh, but that was 15 years ago. So I never really had a big plan to just sort of get as good as I can at it to do it as long as I can. Yeah. Um, with such a high profile job, you know, that can come with criticism. Those people are watching. How do you deal with criticism? How do you contextualize that? Uh, the uh, the only people that really matter in this, in sort of in my equation, are my parents, my friends, 
sorry, my family, my friends, and you know, the people above me at work, or the people I work with. And if the people I'm, if I, the people I work with are happy, and my friends and family are giving it to me straight and telling me that I'm doing a good job, that's all I care about. I mean, I honestly don't care about anything else. And uh, and um, and and to worry about those other people would would be time consuming. I don't have time to worry about it. I, I need to care that my bosses care because if they are happy, then they will keep me on TV, and I can keep feeding my family. Uh, and like I said, my family is never going to, um, they're never going to blow sunshine on my butt ever. They're always going to tell me what they think is the truth. So if I'm getting the honest truth from them and it's positive, then I know I'm doing a good job. Your life has seemed very charmed, you know, just yeah. talking about it and listening to it. When you've had like a life such as yours, what anxieties do you have? You know, do you have peers that you look at and go, ah, I want to shoot for that? Or do you go, how come I'm not excelling there? Or I'm doing pretty good here. Do you have anxieties and, and how do they, and what are those? Uh, uh, the anxiety, well, I had anxiety for a while here because it, I don't, I don't do a whole lot of comparing, but it, you, you can't help but look at the media landscape all over the world. And it's very easy as Canadians to look to the Americans. And they, there is just so much money behind television down there that they can throw a million things against the wall in the hopes that one of them sticks and they will then make all their money back on that one thing. In Canada, it works a little different. It's a lot, a lot different. We just don't have that money. And so whatever they throw against the wall, they want to make sure it's going to stick. And so trying new things on TV in Canada is a slow process. And you can sometimes feel like things are passing you by. Uh, and there was a period where I was concerned, where, like, am I going to get a chance to do other things? I've tried to produce things, uh, bring ideas to the network. And um, it, there have been times where people would listen and times when people wouldn't listen. Uh, and, and we're currently in a time where I do feel like I'm working with people who want to hear my ideas, who want me to succeed, who want me to help them succeed. And that's, I think, really important. Like, I want to be viewed as someone who is contributing and who has value to add. And uh, and I definitely feel that way now. But the flip side is there have been times in the past where I haven't. And you can get anxious. You can get worried. Like, how am I going to, how am I going to take control of this situation? How can I be the, the master of this domain um, instead of just a passenger on a ship that I, and I don't know where we're going? Because at any point, someone could call you up and say, new direction, you're not part of it. Uh, and so you want to make sure that you're protected. And, uh, and so that's where the anxiety comes from uh, is, is a, a feeling that you might not have the control that you need. And obviously, the older you get in life, the more you have at stake because you've got people who depend on you. Yeah, there's been some articles written about kids that go to Ivy League schools and, or that are the sons of, or daughters of, you know, high-level business people and just the anxiety that, that these kids have living in, just because expectations are really high. No, I, I've, never, ever, I've never felt those expectations at all. I mean, I look at my dad's from the political world. I've, I've been doing entertainment television for the better part of two decades now. Uh, those things are pretty far apart. Um, and so I've never felt anyone... Com I've, I've had a couple of people try to uh, come to me and say, in interviews, they'll say, so, you know, are you ever going to do uh, something a little more serious with your life? Um, and so... Really? I've had interviewers say that, and I look at them and say, I, I, re I reject the premise of your question. Yeah, that's loaded as well. I, say, I absolutely reject the premise of your question. I said the fact that... And I, and I sort of tell them how 
proud I am of eTalk and the work that we've done in helping promote Canadian culture in a way that has never been done before. I mean, you get 750,000 people Monday through Friday tune in to hear stories about, yes, there's Beyonce, but the reason I think Beyonce is there is to put Headley on par with Beyonce. So in the, in the eyes of the viewer, they don't know that they're being spoon-fed Canadian culture, and they don't know that they're being told that the accomplishment of one is equal to the accomplishment of the other. Uh, and in our way, we're helping build Canadians, the star system, and therefore Canadian culture. So if you want to say that's not important, okay, I, that's, that's fair, but I reject it. Um, so without all that to say is I take, you know, I think I've been doing something different than my father, but from my parents, I have never felt... Uh, any pressure. And I've never put pressure on myself to live up to anything that my father ever accomplished. I mean, he's one of, how many, where are we at, 22 prime ministers now? Is Justin 22nd? It's my dad, and then Kim. Kim Campbell. Kim Campbell. That was short, not, short, right? Yeah, but it still counts. It counts. It counts. 19, and then Kretzian was 20, then Paul Martin, 21. Uh, Harper, 22, 23. So he's 23. He's the Jordan. The Jordan, yeah. He's yeah, Jordan. Yeah. He's LeBron. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's only, there's a, there's a small number of those guys to try to compare what I'm doing to someone who's in a group of 23 is insane. No, I didn't mean yeah. compare it to, to having to be a yeah. prime minister. Just this idea that you have, in whatever you choose to do, excelling is, in, is important. Just, well, just that, just that. Yes, idea. that, yeah. And, but I think that's an important thing to instill in everybody. Right. You know, pick one thing that you love and make sure that, that you're, you're good at it. If you, if you're good at something you love, you're going to be happy. I mean, it has to. That has that equation has to balance out, right? So, um, so I but I've never felt any pressure. Um, the pressure is is pressure I'm putting on myself. I want to provide for my kids. I want to make sure that uh, tomorrow is better than today. Um, and that and, and yeah, the older the kids get, the more I want to provide for them, and the more I want them to have a future. I want them to be able to do have have a, a future possibility the way I did. Um, and, and, and that, that is, that's pressure. But I think that also drives me. I mean, that gets me out of bed in the morning when I don't want to get out of bed. Yeah. Do your kids watch on TV? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's not really their cup of tea. Sure. You know, they, they're sort of into, but they're aware of what you do. Sure. They're... Well, at one point my, my, one of my sons said that I was famous and I didn't know that he knew what fame was. And I always say I'm not famous. I've talked to famous people. I'm next to the famous person. Uh, but the spotlight's rarely on me. If it, if, if I'm in the spotlights, because it's spillover from where it actually is, uh, and I'm fine with that. That's I didn't get into this. I got into this for a job. I didn't get into this to be famous. I don't. I don't need that. Um, but he, but he brought it up, and and <laughs> and and I said, well, what, what does that mean, famous? And he goes, oh, it's when you're on TV and people recognize you. I was like, that's that's a nutshell. That's in a nutshell. They know your name. You're that's famous. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned writing an article about Justin Trudeau. What's your relationship like with him? Uh, very friendly. We met in a bar in Montreal years ago. <laughs> Just two single guys. Yeah, yeah. We met Sons in a bar. Of prime minister. <laughs> and uh, and um, and we we met right before his father got sick. And then we spent some time together while his father was sick because he was moved back from Vancouver and I was in Montreal at the time. Um, and then when I started in TV, I actually we took our show to Vancouver where he was back being a student, and um, and I interviewed him at the Pacific National Exhibition. We did, we did a whole series of shows from there. And I'm guessing the p &E isn't on now, but it's almost on now. It's like yeah. a Labor Day, right? So we're, we're almost at the 15th anniversary of my very first interview with him. Okay, okay. Wow. And then we went out that night, and we got into a bar fight. <laughs> with <laughs> each other? 
No, no, no. This is outrageous. Okay, so this is an actual true story, and it, it's, 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 and I've told it before, and he knows it, and it's been written about. So I'm not speaking out of turn. Uh, <laughs> we we went to a bar. It was him, me, and Seamus O'Regan, formerly of Canada AM, yeah. and my friend is now in in Justin's um, uh, government. In fact, I introduced them, and so the three of us went out to a bar, <laughs> and I was sitting having a drink, I think, talking, trying, chatting up some lovely ladies, and and Justin and Seamus were. Uh, there's some music being played. I think it was like Great Big C or something like that. And so these two are like jumping up and down. James is from Newfoundland. Yes, exactly. So I think the, the, the spirit of the island compelled him to dance like a, a fool on the dance floor. And they were jumping and like banging into each other. And this did not interest me at all. Um, but, uh, but then these guys walked in and they looked like they were fresh from the gym. They were wearing really tight like Armani exchange clothing. And um, they just, they looked like they, they spent a little too much time at the gym and Seamus accidentally bumped into one of the guys and spilt his beer a bit. And I didn't like the look of this. And I certainly didn't like the look of it when the guy said, oh, it's fine, it's fine. But then they started talking to each other about something. And, and I just didn't like what was going on here. And then um, when just uh, when Seamus got close again, this guy came out of nowhere and like body slammed him. And his Seamus's beer went everywhere. And then this guy sort of parroted back Seamus's apology uh-huh. and Justin didn't like this now Justin had worked as a bouncer and I think had, had some training in the martial arts <laughs> and so he, he sort of stepped in to um, you know I don't know there's a, maybe a little bit of posturing or trying to diffuse the situation or at least make these guys walk away well one guy came out of nowhere and clocked Justin in the nose and um, and he started bleeding everywhere I ran to the front of the bar and uh, told the manager that this was about to happen, uh, and I, I was fresh out of law school, so I threatened to sue the guy. <laughs> I had no idea how I was going to initiate this action or whether I had grounds, but it just came out. Uh, that was my contribution to this fight. And then, like, so he 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 let us out of the sideway, and these guys chased us out. We got into a cab. The cabbie told us he wouldn't take us because we got into the wrong end of the cab line. Yeah. So I threatened to sue that guy too. <laughs> Uh, that didn't go anywhere either. And then we got into another cab and, and, and off, off we went. Um, and then the, I told the story to my producers the next day uh, on the phone. We had our, we, our morning, morning meeting. And, um, and I guess one of my producers, her brother worked for a newspaper, so she told him. And then he called me. And I was like, oh, no, this is not good. But he, he, true to his word, he wrote my version of things. Gotcha. Uh, and uh, and that's that's the way the uh, the story ends. Justin Trudeau and I got into a bar fight. <laughs> that's great. It, they, I mean, it kills at parties. And when I'm emceeing events, it's they people love it. <laughs> Although I tweak the ending. I you got to tweak the ending when you're when you're emceeing an event. Yeah. So, so the ending of the story when I tell it in in crowds is when I went to threaten the the manager. I said you've got. Uh, you know, there's two sons of prime ministers here. We're about to get our asses kicked. What are you going to do? <laughs> and the guy's response is sell, sell tickets or pay admission. Yeah. So that's <laughs> um, I guess lastly, your morning is yeah. this show. That's it. So are you off eTalk now? No, no, I'll, I'll still do, so do both. So this is my eTalk office and yeah. I got a your morning office over there. And so when I come in at 4.30, I'll be going there. 4.30? Yeah. Damn. I know. I know. Uh, but I, there's, there's, there's an energy in this building that they, they, you know, doesn't exist in other places. Sure. I think this we'll all be coming in tired. We'll, by six o'clock, we'll be ready to go. But then once that show's done, I'll sort of float between there and here, and then maybe around ten o'clock, make this my home until about two thirty. Do e talk. Be done with e talk around two fifteen, 
and then still have a few hours to like do things that people do, you know, haircuts and appointments and rotating your tires and whatever people do sure. with their time. And, and But I'll be home before my kids get home. I'm reading them Harry Potter right now, so... Mm-hmm. Great books. Oh, yeah. Well, it's book, movie, book, movie. That's how I did it. Yeah. Yeah, I got and, into it after yeah. and then did it like that. And then and I haven't seen any movies, so it's, it's, Same. it's virgin territory to me, too. And then once we're done, I told them, once we finish all the books and all the movies, then we go down to Orlando. Oh, that's yeah. fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I get to do that stuff. And, you know, I'll, um, I want to cook more. Um, and the, I think these the fact that I'm doing both of these requires just more structure in my life. And there's been far too many times where... It, you know, they'll, it's, it's easy to say, hey, can you come in for an interview at this time? Or, or something new comes into the schedule and you're supposed to leave at 5, you're not leaving until 7.30. And, and there's just, there's a fluidity to e-talk that I love, but at this point in my life, I need a little more structure. And, um, and because I have that structure, I can plan more things. And I'm excited about that. Good luck with all of them, man. Thank you. Thanks so much for your yeah, time. Yeah, it's really a lot of fun. Appreciate Thanks it. Thanks so much, guys. These long form kind of conversations. Awesome. You know, yeah, me too. You know, I stretch think, out a little bit. I more think so. Well, that's why I don't like I was going to get into that actually, the minutiae of those junk Those interviews, are no fun but... for me. I, and it's a muscle, right? You've got to train yourself for them. Um, some people are really good at jumping right in and, and setting up that, uh, having that dynamic. I stopped doing it for so long that I just don't know how to do it anymore. And it takes me. The entire interview to develop a rapport. To warm it up. I much prefer longer form. Yeah. Who, yeah. Who's the best uh, celeb at the junket interviews? Who gives you real shit immediately? Uh, George Clooney. Oh yeah. Because he got into it later. He became famous later in life. Mm-hmm. So all of his early failures, he's proud of them. You know, yeah. Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. <laughs> that he's proud of that stuff. Yeah. And uh, and he, and he knows why you're there. So uh, Tom Cruise is the same thing. Tom yeah. Cruise gives is super intense. And gives you, he knows that if you got three minutes with him, he's gonna give you the best three minutes of your day. Uh, but not he's an overachiever, that guy. He wants yeah. to be the best at literally yeah. everything he does. Yeah. And me, but meanwhile, that's like that's two out of. And the ones who should do it are the ones who are new to the industry, okay. and they're they're the worst. Welcome to the dessert. Shane Cunningham, our pop culture aficionado, is here. Shane got married, and Max, you were not there. I missed it. Yeah, thanks for nothing, Max. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I did uh, contribute two people's worth of uh, money in the envelope. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so Lauren went, but we contribute the, the amount of money that two people would give, I think. No, yeah, it's funny when you uh, going through that process, because yeah. I always wanted to know what it's like, because I always give the money. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, I wonder what it's like when they open it, if they judge you or anything like Do you that. Do judge? Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's just like that little extra amount can, you're like, oh, okay. It's funny, like just a $50 amount, even yeah. though it's meaningless, you just think about it. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so Mike and I, luckily we made a deal where we weren't going to give each other anything. Oh, nice. Because it counts each other out because Mike's getting married next week now. Yeah. yeah. But I would assume we'd each give each other a, a G. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Easily. (laughs) But yeah, uh, your girlfriend was actually like, uh, two people were like so uh, into the wedding more than anyone. And it was Lauren, your girlfriend, and uh, JR. JR Diggs. That's awesome. (laughs) But she came up, she was like bawling after the thing, like all night. Yeah. She could not stop crying. Yeah, it made me feel so good. Like, because I was super nervous about the speech part. She loved your speech. She said it was like one of the best speeches she's ever heard. Yeah, her and JR. We're like, JR's writing like a play about it. 
<laughs> like, like, so he was obviously more effective than Lauren. But Shane, uh, uh, this guy J.R. Diggs used to have a television show on national TV. He's a guy from Hamilton, and and he used to put Shane on his show when Shane was a young man. And we all love J.R. Yeah. J.R. is still still a good friend. He of balls ours. with uh, us. Yeah. yeah, but he was like uh, the student has now become the teacher. That's what he said. <laughs> and all on my honeymoon, he messaged me this play he's writing about the speech. Wow. It was very weird, and he's still on it, and he says he has a date booked for, like, he's putting the cart before the horse sure. a little bit, but he has, like, a venue and a date booked for this, I guess it's like a one-man show? Like, what do they call that? When yeah, one-man yeah. shows. Yeah. So, um, did anybody video your speech? I, that was the first thing I asked for. Nobody's gone back to me. No, uh, no one videoed There's it. no documentation of it. None, which I like, because uh-huh. then it lives in the ether as the best speech or whatever. Do you have it If you have down? it. No, I didn't write it down. You just made it up as you went. I well, I started planning it, and I uh, I'm re- I get really nervous about public speaking, as a lot of people do. With maybe sure. you guys being the exception of that rule, and uh, I was talking to my fiance at the time about it, and she goes, "Oh, don't do that." She goes, "That's not going to go well the way you structure it." And I got I never get angry with her. I got super upset, huh. and I was like, "Be positive. I'm not confident." And it was like our only mini fight before the wedding over my speech. Because mm-hmm. she, I guess, didn't envision it. Her speech was totally different than mine. So I was just like, I can't talk to her about it anymore. I'm going to have to still go with my gut, even though she didn't think it was going to go well. And then it ended up going super well. So I felt great afterwards. But So and what I'll say about the <clears throat> Lauren's reaction, because, yeah, Lauren was like texting me like drunkenly. We were in Europe at the time. And she was like getting very emotional about the night. Um, and she said, you know, I think this might be true for a lot of the girlfriends of our, of the Champagne Boys of our friend group, is the only version of Shane they really know is the outrageous version of Shane. And so when you do something crazy, or in the past, again, you haven't been doing many crazy things lately, but like in the past, say, five or six years, if you've done something crazy, they just go, oh, that f- Shane guy, like, he's just like always doing outrageous things. I know he's really funny, but he's kind of just an asshole sometimes. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> but you know what I mean? No, no. But, but and I think the reason why... Wedding invitation rescinded. <laughs> now no, I'm going to start crying, Lauren. <laughs> no, no. And Lauren, no, Lauren's never specifically said this, but I think there is a version of you, and even maybe to some of our listeners, that just comes off as a wild and crazy guy. A wild and crazy guy. Right? Yeah. But the reason why I think the Champagne Boys, like... Uh, you know, understand your humor and your actions a little differently is because we know where you come from. We've we've had like more emotionals and heart heart to hearts. We know like you know about your family background, just all these things that sort of make you you, and uh, and that's why like the context is always different when you do anything. And the same thing for any of us. Uh, so for for someone like Lauren and probably a lot of other girls, it's like oh I didn't know this side of Shane existed, and we've known this side of Shane to exist since we since I met you. You know, it's like that's why we're friends, and that's why we're friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know I think it was uh, you know I think Lauren loved that, and I think she understands you. And, I think it, I think the key to a good speech is breaking up and almost crying. People really like that when you almost cry. So I did that like. 12 times probably. <laughs> <laughs> it really, really sucks people in, I find. It was natural, but uh-huh. I find sometimes it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Sure. And if a guy does a super polished speech, kind of like Ben Mulroney probably would do, yeah. I don't think it... Because if something's too good and too polished, you're kind of like, ah, oh, that feels a little disingenuous. Sure. But if something's kind of 
scattered, but you know what the person's trying to say and they're being emotional, I find that hits harder. Of course. Like emotion just hits really deep. And if you can do both, that's the real sweet spot, I think. Yeah. And I kind of f***ed up a bunch, but I, 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 I feel like I kept it more in that sweet spot of being in control and being out of control with emotion. So yeah. I thought it went way better than I expected. Just the anecdotes about your parents and the sacrifices they made for you and how they influenced your life uh, were really, really touching. Good job. Yeah, but that's what you missed at the oh, wedding. Oh, sorry. The other thing I was going to say was um, she, Lauren said, it's like also Shane like wasn't like a waste case for the whole night. Like he was like this, the most sober guy there. And it was like, I think everyone, like Lauren was expecting you just to be like, the, the wild and crazy dude, but you were, mm-hmm. like, on the job. Like, do, do, is that true? A hundred percent. And I, I had gone out the night before uh-huh. and tried not to be a waste case there because yeah. we have a tradition. Mike's going to go through this on Thursday night where they rent a hotel room. We go out and we get kind of uh, tipsy before the big <laughs> night. <laughs> and it's really hard to not partake and get as wild as the groomsmen and everyone else. But I said I would drink five drinks, and I ended up drinking seven the night before. Yeah. And during the wedding, I didn't really start chugging Jack Daniels or whatever till after the speech, was, mm-hmm. which was well after midnight. And I was the least drunk person merely by the fact I started four hours later than sure. everyone else. So that would be my advice for Mike, which obviously he's concerned about too, even, even going out that night before. Is kind of a scary thing, but you want to partake in all the yeah, traditions. Yeah, your friends. You want to be a part you. of it, but you also don't want to be hungover for your wedding. Yeah. So you last minute decided because originally you weren't going to do it. I was like, I don't need to do it. I want to get a good night's sleep. I'll throw on some Star Trek and then like wake up ready to take on my big day. But then I felt like I was really letting down the guys. And I have like, <laughs> it's more for everyone else, yeah. honestly. And it's like everybody in the wedding party is like, we got to do it. Come on. What's the deal? What? Like the wife won't let you. And I'm like, no, that's not it. I'm just trying to be like responsible. And then I got shamed. So I will be there. And yeah. when I don't show up to my own wedding because I'm in Acapulco shit face, <laughs> that's on you guys. Acapulco. But like I was telling you, the, the movie Deer Hunter really inspired me to go out and party the night before my wedding. Yeah. Because that has that epic 30 – have you ever seen that no. movie? It has like a 30-minute scene of just a bunch of men going out drinking before uh, a wedding. <laughs> like young Christopher Walken, good-looking. Nice. De Niro. Yeah, it kind of looks like Mike actually in that movie, Christopher Walken. It's oh. weird. Actually, also, the other thing we're going to talk about since you are the pop culture aficionado, Shane, is last week on the show, we got last-minute takes to Kanye from the nut. That, yeah, I was super excited about that. Almost worried it wasn't going to come through. Well, we didn't, well, because Unzi's only in town for like a night. So it was like, are people, like, can we really f off to this Kanye show or does Unzi have to stay here and greet the people? Mm-hmm. And ultimately chose to go to the Kanye show with us. Well, yeah, uh, kind of <laughs> cornered him. I was like, you got to make the decision now. You did do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, I got another version of this story, but continue. Well, oh, no, let's hear sorry. yours. I'm yeah, no, we want to hear this that. version. Well, just that. Like I ran in, I was out, I was having a night with uh, our friend Dan because I hadn't seen Dan in a while, and I, I was walking down to Houston, and I, I ran into uh, Jake and your wife Alex. Jake's. Uh, oh, I heard. Yeah. Yeah, and and then she was telling me she was like, I was so excited because Shane texted me saying I got tickets to Kanye, and then I was like, I'm going to Kanye, and then he texted me and he said, Okay, that you we don't have tickets for you. And <laughs> yeah, that is what happened. <laughs> I got excited, and I go, We're going to Kanye, baby. And then I'm like, no, Unsworth's in town. I got to go out with the guys. Yeah. So I'm like, either I, to a great start. <laughs> either I get two more tickets to have four in total, or I just give the tickets to Alex. Uh-huh. So I was like, actually, stand by, baby. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, something happened. Can't yeah. go. 
But we luckily ended up going. We did. And I was kind of the only person who had a lukewarm reaction to it, I felt. Like, yeah, am I, I wrong in saying that? I or? thought it was like I re- like I'd never seen anything like that. I think a lot of people have seen the photos at this point. Yeah, like describe it. You're good at describing. Well, it. I mean, he had a floating stage. He had a whole lighting ring above the stage. I feel like everything. There was no bad seat in the house because the stage would sort of like go to the one end of the arena and then go to the other end of the arena and then it would float out. So it's like if you're side stage, you have a great spot. If you're in the bowl, where normally you could be really far away from a stage. He's coming to you, and he's going to be 15 feet away from you as over the stage. Yeah. Well, and then if you're in the pit, mm. he's right over top of you where it looked like a rave or a punk show. So, like— That I, part with walking in is awesome. Yes. Because you've never seen anything like yeah. it. So, it's, it was very Kanye-esque in that it was visionary. And, you know, it was very dark and, like, smoky. And the stage had, like, these lights on the front that almost made it look like a spaceship as it sort of, like, you know— orbed around the arena um, and then he performs the shit out of it and he has a million hits so it's like you're never not entertained and just watching the people in the pit became its own fascination well those are all the Instagram videos where people just like wiling out underneath this movie yeah stage. all of the show is the, how the people reacted and I, I don't think you could have a show like this unless you're a massive star because yeah. that's part of the fascination that a massive star would never have such a minimalist performance yeah. aspect and you have to be able to just stand there like no band like he's he's tethered to the stage yeah. and it's just him for two hours but you never get bored i got bored a little bit though i did well uh, i was just getting drunk so i was kind of yeah like, you <laughs> were but I, I'm, I'm i'm definitely in the uh, minority because i find everyone was fascinated for the entire time yeah, greg was, was like loving it mm-hmm. Greg, that was his review yeah 10 out of 10. sorry well, Greg's like kind of ultimate hipster, too. He likes things that are super weird. So mm-hmm. I knew Greg would love it because it's not a mainstream thing, and that's kind of right up Greg's alley. For me, I, I do like doses of that, but I definitely wanted where he kind of lulls you to sleep with how kind of simplistic it is, and then just it explodes to something truly incredible. But it never got there. It just stayed. There was no encore, which was kind of cool, too, to just – cut the bullshit and just end the show and not have that, like, fake thing where you walk off stage. Yeah. Which I guess he couldn't because he's on a platform. He was tethered to the stage. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be right back. <laughs> Jerry, come here. Unhook me. It's just yeah. awkward. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I was – overall, I thought it was cool to be there. Glad I did it. But I wasn't blown away. It's funny how polarizing Kanye is. Like, my girlfriend does not like Kanye. And so when I'm describing the show the next day, I'm like, oh, you know, it was pretty cool. And the stage would, like, tip down toward the mosh pit and everybody would be reaching at him. And he'd, like, lay down on his belly on the stage and kind of reach out like he was a messiah. And she just goes, oh, I f- hate that guy. <laughs> like, whereas, like, I thought that was kind of a cool yeah. moment for his fans. But she sees it as, like, a, a sort of a, an indictment of his god complex. Did he do that partly... Because, you know, they're saying he's bankrupt. To save cash? <laughs> like, I don't I, think so. No, I think no. that rig was expensive. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, he saved... I mean, they got to set it up in every arena. And they can sell way more seats in the arena now because that stage doesn't take up a quarter of the yeah. arena. There's no... Like I said, kind of the genius of it is there's no bad seats in the house. And you can sell mm-hmm. every seat in the house. Like a, It's like, yeah. you could, like a basketball game, but you also sell all the spots on the court. Yeah, and big thanks. I got to thank the nut. We're friends again. Oh, it's true. Up. What would you give the Kanye show to 10? Oh, seven. Wow. Everything's a seven with you, I find. Yeah, I need. I like being blown away. I was blown away by a movie called Hell or High Water, I will say that. Okay. Check it out. Oh. Hell or High Water, <laughs> 10 out of 10. <laughs> That's it. That's all. That's our episode. Max, do you have anything to say? No. Uh, you know, it's been great to be back. I'm glad I didn't get the boot from the show. Never. You, Matt Ellensworth. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, the artwork is provided by Jenna Gregory. You can find her stuff at jennasdoodles.com. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes. Leave us a rating. Leave us a comment. Those things make a uh, big help. Follow us on Make Us a Big Help. What the hell? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's what happens when I try to be smooth. But follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Mike on Much. The Mike on Much podcast is produced by Max Kerman. I am your host, Mike Veerman. See you next week if we don't die on the weekend.